Okay, if you open up your Bibles to Micah chapter 1. Micah chapter 1. Tonight, uh, we will continue on with Micah, but Micah actually is continuing on in the second verses 8 through 16 is what we'll read. But he's continuing on from his original thoughts of last time we talked about that there is only, only God is the one who gets a high place. He's the only one who gets, who is God, who gets to be worshipped. And Israel had problems with uh, graven images, worshipping idols. But we see in Judah, there were idols, there were physical idols at times. But their main thing was not, per se, idolatry of worshipping a figurine. Which we know all idolatry ultimately is not just, is not that. But it was more than that. And that's what he gets into. And it's very much a modern issue of the modern idolatry. Is what he gets into is ultimately with secularism. And that's what we'll look at tonight is the different idols that we have in our lives and the idols that he speaks of here and God's judgment on there. Um, So let's start in Micah chapter uh, 1, verse 1, just in review up to verse 16. The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Merastite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth. And all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down, and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountain shall be molten under him, and the valley shall be cleft, as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel, What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria as a heap of the field, and as plantings of a vineyard. And I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate, for she gathered it of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. Therefore I will wail and howl, I will go stripped and naked, I will make a wailing like the dragons, and mourning as the owls, for her wound is incurable. For it is come unto Judah, he is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Declare ye it not at Gath, weep ye not at all. In the house of Aphra roll thyself in the dust. Pass ye away, thou inhabitants of Saphir, having thy shame naked. The inhabitant of Zanon, came not forth in the, men, in the morning of Bethazel. He shall receive of you his standing. For, in the inhabitant, for the inhabitant of Meroth waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. O thou inhabitants of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Morisheth Gath, the houses of Axib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitants of Mershah. He shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. Make thee bald, and pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy boldness, baldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from thee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this evening. Uh, thank you for we get to open your word. Lord, help uh, that I would be clear in uh, presenting what your word is uh, saying here, that we would just understand, we'd learn and um, grow out of and obey it, and we would uh, change our lives depending on what we hear from the word of your, from your word. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so here Micah continues on from his previous sermon to all the earth concerning the judgment of Israel and Judah. Remember in verse 2, he said, Hear all ye people. And then he goes into and explains how God is coming down as the judge. So now he continues on in his knowledge of God's justice. He knows that God is just. He knows what God has done to Samaria, to Israel. And he knows that because God is just, he will also bring judgment on the nation of Judah. He understands that the Assyrian army is not only, we see this here, that not only an invading force, but also the means of God's judgment on the nation. He thus begins, though, in verse 8. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. So he hears all this about Israel, about Samaria, about how God is going to judge them. He's going to grind up their the graven images and beat them into pieces. And he makes a vow. He makes a vow to mourn because of what he knows. But he does not vow to weep in a corner. He doesn't vow that he's just going to go in his quiet place and just weep. He vows to wail in public because this is something that he understands affects all. His preaching here is not meant to say, I told you so, or look at me in front of everybody, try to get a pity party, or him weeping in front of everybody to get eyes to look at him. But rather, he's trying to get people to understand their plight. Because of this, he puts on a show, you might say, it's a show of mourning, of what it will be like for Judah, and as an example of what he commands them to do in verse 16. In verse 16, he tells them again, it begins with mourning. He gives an example, and at the end he says, you're supposed to mourn yourself. Make thee bald, pull thee for thy delicate children. This is not something to just shed a few tears about. It is a very sad day that Micah knows is even at the door. He doesn't think of it as, this is something going to come in a long time, this judgment. It's here. It's at any moment. It's at the door. He vows to not only mourn, but also to show what it would be like for the captives. They would be made ashamed before the world. And he says, I will wail and howl. I'll go stripped and naked. There's disagreement on what the stripped and naked is talking about, of whether it's a shoe. But several times throughout the scriptures, when it's put together, it's clear that he's stripped and naked of his shoes, of his clothes, just to show the utter mourning and also shame before the nations. Because that's what nakedness is, a shame. Everybody would see Israel, for what it, Judah, for what it was. They would be shamed before all the nations. And so he vows to mourn, to show himself as if he's a captive, to weep, to wail, to howl. And nakedness, though, we see how it's a judgment of God throughout the scriptures. God is going to make a shame of his people. And Micah is trying to show to the world, or show to the, not to the world, but show to Judah that this is what God is going to make of you. Weep, howl, because this judgment has come upon you. Here he pictures what it will be like for them as captives. He also uses two animals here. He talks about a dragon. He talks about owl, wailing like the dragons, mourning like the owls. Uh, the dragons, sometimes it seems that possibly that is actually referring to the jackal. But nonetheless, it's referring to animals that screamed and made loud. It wasn't a little mouse. that He's not saying the wailing of a mouse. No. He's talking about something loud and obnoxious. With very loud cries, he uses these examples uh, these two animals, 
very obnoxious cries to give a pe- the people a picture of how he will wail and how they too will wail someday because of their the coming destruction. Just as Israel has been destroyed, he moves on in verse 9 and says, Judah's wound is incurable. That is why he's wailing. Because it occurred to Israel, just because it occurred to Israel, and Muslim might say, does this really mean Judah's next? Well, yes, because Micah knows his God. God is just. He had already come to Israel. He had already laid waste of Israel. And Judah had the same sins in her. So he would not let her pass as well. And it, he, he makes a point to show that this has come to the Israel to Judah already. He doesn't just say it's come to his people. He makes emphasis and says, even to Jerusalem. He's saying, it's already at the door. In verse 13, he also says, we read verse 13, O thou inhabitants of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. So the transgressions of Israel are already found in the city of Judah. They're already there. And so in Micah, we see his, the judgment is as good as done. He is confident in God's justice. He knows his God. And so he mourns and weeps and wails because this wound, this disease that was found in Israel is now found in Judah already. So Micah has three points he makes in this message. He shows his grief over the coming destruction of Judah in verse 8. Then he calls on the cities that will be destroyed. And last, he calls the people to mourn. Because their captivity, though it's yet in the future, it's here. It's as good as done. And after vowing to mourn, he giving his reasons for doing so, of saying that God's judgment has come upon, is coming, has come, is here at the door of Judah. Because of your sin, because of they have, we see that they have put some sort of idols, which we'll look at that. Michael, Micah calls then on the cities of Judah, which this, verses 10 through 15, you might separate this into verses 8 and 9, and then verses 10 through 15, and then verse 16, and three, those three main points. Verses 10, verse 10 through 15 has many puns and plays on words, playing on words, and it was very interesting to dig into and find out that, um, but he's using all of those different city names to make a point. Each one he has a point to make with them. He makes puns on their names, and in order to get the this point to point out what the sin of the people of Judah was. He uses these different names. Israel had set up false idols, but Judah, we see other places, had set up false idols, but they weren't as blatant. They still had the temple in Jerusalem. But her sanctioned idols, you might say, were different. They were, as all idols truly are, they are the lifting up of something other than God in in his stead. Something lifting up something before God is what they were do. They trusted in something or someone else other than the Holy One of Israel, other than God. And as we saw in verses two through seven, there is space for only one 
high place. There is only one God, and he is a very jealous God. He does not allow others to take his place. He will not be substituted. God is the only one who gets a high place. He is a jealous God and expects that he is the only one to be worshipped. For all other gods, in fact, are no gods at all. Anything else you worship is not going to help you. And that is what he points out here. All these other things they looked to fell. They failed. God is the only one who is consistent. He first begins, though, by making an allusion to a phrase, digging into here, in verse 10, when so, uh, to, that David said when Saul died. Right here. He says, David said, Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away. The shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returns not empty. So there he, David, this sermonette, you might say, of this, this one second point of his sermon in verses 10 through 15, he begins with referring back to David, where David said, tell it not in Gath. And he was referring to when the death of Saul. Because if he told it in Gath, that's their enemy. That's the Philistines. What would that bring upon the people but shame? He tells the people to not tell their enemies, as that will give them cause to blaspheme. And there's some, that you might, if possibly, when you look at the whole passage together, it seems as well to have the idea of don't tell them because they're foreigners. Don't go to the foreigners for help because they're not going to be able to help you. Don't go to them. Don't weep. Don't go to the public. Don't go to others for help or don't go to others to mourn out your problems because... The foreigners, the enemies of God, cannot help and will not help. But he then goes on, and really where he says, in the house of Aphra, this is where it gets into the different puns. In the house of Aphra, so Aphra means dust. So you could say, in the house of Aphra, roll thyself in the dust. So throughout there, you have several different things you might say, like in Chicago, let the windy city be blown away, or something like that. Um, he uses several different puns like that through here. So, in the house of Aphra, roll thyself in the dust. So, rather than declaring it among the heathen, declaring it among the enemies of God, among your own people, mourn. There seems to be two aspects to this as well, but um, among your own people, mourn, but then also weep that God has to show you a man of dust in this way. He has to bring you to this point in order to show you you're what you've always been, just dust. And so then in verse, then in verse 11, he goes on and says, actually, before I get ahead of myself, but at the beginning of creation, though, it be said, man is only dust. They're but men, woads. And woe to that man that must learn he is but a man through the means of God debasing him and bringing to his knees. It would have been so much better to worship God and lift him up in the first place. But then Micah commands the, he says, pass away thou inhabitants of Saphir. So pass away thou inhabitants of Saphir, having thy shame naked, 
So, saphir actually means, here's another pun, saphir actually means beauty. So we could say, pass away thou inhabitants of beauty town, having thy shame naked. So they were priding themselves, he's using these as a, um, as an example, as an understand, as a, as a pun, as a word to, as a picture word. Saphir is the town of beauty, and God strips away that beauty. And they are naked, shame naked. They're naked before the people. They're shamed before the, all the other peoples of the earth because of their sin. And God would turn her pride and this God of her beauty into her own demise. Saphir, the beauty town, would be made shameful, naked, without her beauty anymore. And then the inhabitant of Zaanon came not forth in the morning of Bethazel. Zaanon is uh, many has the idea of the country of flocks, or the idea of the many place with many people. So Zaanon, the place of many people, came not forth. The place people were looking for the if anybody's going to come, it's the town with lots of people. And guess what? They didn't show up. Because who were they supposed to be placing the trust in? Not their beauty, not themselves as a man, and not in other men as well. They were supposed to place their trust in God. God alone. They came not forth in the morning of Bethazel. Bethazel is near. Bethazel means a place is near. So the place that was supposed to be near was rather was mourning. They couldn't help either. Because they were in a place of mourning. Why were they mourning? Because of their captivity. Because they were being taken away into captivity. So all of these, these people, they're trusting in themselves. They're trusting their beauty. They're trusting in others. They're trusting in maybe that they, somebody else who they're expecting to be there for them. And they're not. They all fail, and they're all in the same plight. He's showing two things that, throughout this, though. He's showing kind of why they're being judged with the puns, but he's also showing how they are being judged. They are totally being taken out of the land. In verse 12, For the inhabitants of Maroth waited carefully for good. So Maroth is, has the idea of bitter town, and what were they looking for? Good or sweetness. They're looking for sweetness, and what they get? Evil. They were looking, and seems with it, verse 12, where were they looking to? They were looking to the gate of Jerusalem. So they're looking to Jerusalem for help. The place that you'd expect as a citizen of a country, you expect your government, your, your leaders to be there for you at times with their armies. But guess what? Evil had come to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, the place that these, that Myroth was looking for, failed. Failed them. They should have been looking to God instead. Verse 13, O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. 
So Lachish here, we have here that Lachish is actually a major city. It was actually a fortified city that was built up among several different kings of Solomon and Rehoboam and some other kings who built up Lachish as a town, as a fortified city with chariots, horses of war. And what does he tell this glorious city to do? The people of that city to bind their chariots, their war chariots, to racehorses. In other words, get out of town because those, ra- those chariots are going to do nothing for you. You will be destroyed. You will be taken. And we see in 2 Kings 8, 13, or 18.13, actually, that there in 2 Kings 18.13, just as they were told it would be taken, Second Kings 18.13 Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib king of Assyria come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish. Sennacherib had taken that city, Lachish. That wonderful, glorious city that was a defense, one of the major defending, uh, fortresses in the area of Judah was taken. Because he's reminding them, you're trusting in the wrong things. You're trusting in things that cannot help you. And here we see, this is where it says, we'll get back to this, but she is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. So here we'll, we'll come back to this, but we see though that the sin is they're trusting in their own strength, their own wisdom, their own beauty. And it starts here. In Lachish, trusting in their own strength rather than in God. And that trusting in their own strength is what brought on the transgressions of Israel. Uh, Some will say maybe Lachish was also where they brought in idols physically, because it was a, uh, since being a fortress town, there would have been royalty there as well. But in context, it seems to be saying, it is right here, it's talking of, that they were focusing on, they were trusting in other things other than God. Maybe not physical idols, but many other inanimate idols, you might say. Um, and then in verse 14, Therefore shalt thou give presents to Morisheth Gath. So because of that, therefore shalt thou give presents. So presents, right, give presents is talking about, it's actually... Um, as a dowry, give parting gifts or give a dowry. So here we have shall give parting gifts or a dowry to Morisheth Gath. Morisheth Gath is right there. That um, that means bride. So it's the idea here that giving the dowry to the bride, and in the process, Sennacherib Assyria would take the bride and get the dowry. So all of that would be taken from the people of Israel. But in that same, on the other side of that same verse, they're connected, the houses of Aksib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. So Aksib is 
means lie, but also that um, with puns and um, being similar sounding to um, looking at words that are in Hebrew, it, it, he's making a pun as well to a city that is so lying, but also an industrial city. So a city that would bring money and bring wealth to the kings of Israel. So they're giving up their wealth through this dowry and this more, they're, brought, they're losing their bride, they're losing this dowry, but they also are not getting any money. And so they're giving up everything and nothing's coming in, which all of us who have a budget know that's not good. Um, but all of these things are because they are pursuing their own strength, their own well-being aside from God. And so verse 15, yet will I bring an heir unto thee. So he's telling all these things and this heir is not saying, some people say maybe it's the Messiah. No, it's clearly not talking about the Messiah here. It is talking about not Jesus Christ, but a possessor. A possessor would be brought. Marisha means possession. And so the possessor, let me double check that. Possessor, sorry. Marisha means possessor. And Marisha, the possessor, would be possessed. Would be owned. Would be taken by the Assyrians. And on top of that, not only would this in, really in Israel, but Israel, Marisha, the place of possession would become the possession. But on top of that, the kings. So it says, he shall come, this heir shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. So it begins with a reference to David and ends with an allusion to David. Where's Adullam? Adullam is where David fled from Saul. And the glory of Israel, the kings, the reason the heir would come to Adullam is because those men would, just as David, fled to Adullam. They would, the kings, the glory of Israel, would flee to Adullam as well. So God would be totally decimating the city, or not the, the region, the country, the nation of Judah, because of their sin. And that's what Micah is trying to say. So that's why he ends and says, Make thee bald. And pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge, enlarge thy baldness as the eagle, for they are gone into captivity from these, these. So he begins by saying, you are, he says, I'm going to weep. Weep because the judgment of God has come upon you. Weep because it is here even at the door. Weep because you are going to be sent to captivity, even to your children, all your delicate children as well will be sent to captivity. That's the idea of, or the idea of baldness though is weeping. That's why they're making themselves bald. So, we see all of this. We see a man weeping because God is judging them. So what lessons can be learned from here? First we see in verse 1, or verse 10, I mean, woe to the man that must learn his manhood or learn that he is a man through the means of God, debasing him and bringing him to his knees. Woe to that man. You'd be much better by taking the word of God as it says it is, believing who God is, trusting him with what he said he can do and will do. 
because otherwise you will be brought to, you'll realize that you're dust. You'll roll in the dust if you do not realize that you are just dirt. That's what God made you. And the only strength or power you have is because he enabled you. Secondly, God will not be replaced by anyone or anything else. You will not replace God. God will not be replaced. But also, God will not be replaced by you elevating your beauty. Maybe you are... Maybe you're beautiful. Some of us aren't. But maybe you're elevating something that God gave you, a blessing. And you're elevating it to above him and saying maybe that this is what I'm going to worship or devote all my time to. God gave that to you, but don't worship it because God can very easily take it away. Just as Job said, he gives and he takes away. Very easily God can do that. So don't trust in those things as well is secularism. Secularism, other men, other leaders. Don't trust in any one of these things because God is the only God that can hold you up and exalt you. All others will be your downfall and destruction. Whatever you worship other than God will destroy you. And that's what we see. The things that they worship, whether themselves, their own beauty, their own numbers, their friends that they expected to come, their weapons, their strength. Whatever it was, it was brought to naught. To be, it was destroyed. Whether that's yourself in verse 10. Maybe you, like we said, worship Worship yourself, but that doesn't mean you bow down and have an idol and no. You put yourself before God. Maybe that is the word of God says something and you say, Well, I believe most of it, but not that part. We, or I, I I get to choose what part of truth is truth. And God is only parts of the Bible are true, and I'm gonna choose something else. If you do that, you're making yourself God. And God will not be mocked. He will you will roll in your dust and see. That you are just dirt. Don't trust in your beauty. Because that will bring down. Like we said, God can easily strip that away. But he also can make your beauty look stupid. I mean, if you see today what people call beautiful, at least on the media, what they try to be pushing is beauty. It's not. It's ugly. Because true beauty comes from God. Also the secularism. So that was really what in verse 13 says she's the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion for the transgressions of Israel found in me. That is what their sin was, is they were trusting in money, weapons. They were try- This Lachish was a city of wealth, a city of means, a city, a fortified city that had weapons of war- warfare, the armies. They trusted in those things rather than in God. Other men in verses 11 and 12, they were trusting in those things. Those people will fail you. I remember having friends growing up, or leaders, I should say, growing up, that left the church for one reason or another, and that made my heart drop. And that's a fact of the matter, but it showed me that you cannot trust that person 
you can't you cannot fully trust them. You have to ultimately your trust must be put in God. Also, the leaders, they were trusting in their leaders. They said, but evil came from the... So, verse 12, for the inhabitants of Meroth waited carefully for good. So, they were expecting, expectantly waiting for something good, for something sweet to come, for deliverance. But what came? Nothing. Evil, actually, rather than good or sweetness coming or military aid coming to them, evil actually came from the person that they were expecting to get aid from. So don't you don't you cannot trust your leaders, whether political leaders or anyone. Ultimately, your trust must be placed in God. But also with that, they also you see the leaders in verse fifteen. He shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. So the kings, the nobles, the glory of Israel. Where are they at? In a cave, in Adullam. They can't help you out. The only reason they have any strength of their own is because God has given it to them. And he can just as easily send someone else in, this heir, this possessor, to come in and take it away. To send them running. So don't use your strength, your beauty, your means, or any blessings of any kind as an excuse to set up a God before the God who gives Every good and perfect gift. We must remember that all these good and perfect gifts, all these things he had given Israel, he had given them. And they began to worship the things that God had given them. And God had to take them away. God had to take it all away, all those blessings away, because they had begun to put those blessings before God. And that is something we do many, many times ourselves. But the last thing that must be remembered is Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. Herein was Judah's sin. She trusted in herself and her strength rather than her God. In Deuteronomy 17.16 it says, But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he shall multiply horses, for as much as the Lord has said, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Uh, Isaiah 2, 5-9 through 9 says, O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east, and are soothsayers like the Philistines. And they please themselves in the children of strangers. Their land also is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself. Therefore forgive them not. Isaiah 31, 1-5 says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses, and trust in chariots. Because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. In Hosea 10, he says, Ye have plowed in wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity, ye have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way, in the multitude of thy mighty men. Therefore shalt a tumult rise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled. As Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel in the day of battle, the mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel be cuddly 
utterly cut off. And what is that wickedness? Is that they were trusting other things other than God. In Hosea 14, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless find mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him. But we see, they said, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. Micah 5, 10 through 15, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land, and throw down all thy strongholds, and I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee. So will I destroy thy cities, and I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. He was judging them, and here in that right there, he equates similar things as witchcraft, as standing images, so graven images. He equates that with trusting in our own strength. Trusting in the things that God has given to us. We are supposed to take care of our families, protect our families, but ultimately we must leave it in the hands of the Lord. You do it. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. It's not that he was saying don't, don't have an army at all, don't have a standing army at all, but they were, they were multiplying because they were starting to put their trust, and if we have the biggest army, then they won't be safe. Well, God doesn't, he can have the biggest army in the world, and he can easily wipe it away. He did that to Egypt with the Nile. That's not hard for him. So whether it's an army or whatever it else, maybe you are trusting in. Stop it. Stop trusting in those things. Don't use though your duties or blessings as an excuse to neglect other duties God has given you. That is one way that is practical for us. Is we'll say, I'm being a good steward when your whole focus is on getting rich. He used that as a terminology, and honestly, you're trusting in your own works, your own wisdom. And Proverbs was reading that, and it said, labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. When we labor for that, we are using our own wisdom. Whatever it is, don't use that duty or blessing as an excuse. Maybe you say that you don't have enough God tells us to be hospitable. And you say, I don't have lots of money. Well, do what you can. Don't use that as an excuse. There is no excuse. Because ultimately, if you say that, you are saying that God has not provided enough for me to do what he has said. No, God has. And we are obligated to obey him. So let's look here and see. Are there any of these things that we are looking to ourselves? looking to other than God? Are we looking to our own selves? And maybe we're just pride in our own selves. You have those sometimes, you have those people that are weird every once in a while that you don't know why they're pride, proudful, but they are. And sometimes they don't seem to know either. Maybe that's you. 
Maybe you're trusting in your beauty. Like, I've got, I've got the good looks. Well, I don't. I know that. But on others, I've got the good looks. And that will get me places. That will get me things. And stop it. Uh, maybe you're trusting in your money. Maybe you're uh, trusting in your own strength. Maybe you're looking to some other man for help. And you're expecting that if he doesn't come through, nothing will happen. Well, that's not true. God is, he is God. He will take care of you. We must trust him. Because something that's all these things, in one sense, we would seem to say, what's the big deal? God thought it was a big deal. He was going to send judgment on Judah because they lifted themselves up in their beauty, their money, other men. They looked to things that we would expect in general. That's a good thing to look to. But it's not. God is the only one, as we said last time, who gets a high place. Whether it's a physical high place or whether it's your own pride, your own dignity, your own self-respect, your own beauty, your own money, your own knowledge, your own wisdom. God is the only one and he, we, we must not exalt ourselves against him. So let's remember that and take that into account. And look in our own lives and see, is there something that I ought to be mourning and weeping about? Because if these are in my life, we see that God's judgment is at hand. God will judge you for those seemingly insignificant gods in your life. 